you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up this series of messages on the book of James. And um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I have enjoyed walking through this with you. Um, I'll tell you in a minute where we're going to be going next week. It's a part of um, kind of introduction. I'll just kind of share with you where we're going in the next uh, couple of weeks as well. But I'm excited to, to finish the book of James, not because I'm glad to leave it, but just because I'm glad to, to c- accomplish that with you, to walk through that with you. And so um, I do want to start today by just making sure that... Uh, you understand something about me and make sure that I'm not weird. Now, some of you may have already decided that, but uh, we're going to talk about just, I, I want to ask a question. I think there are two kinds of people in the world, and I kind of want to see where you are. The, the two kinds of people I think in the world are, one, there's a group of people that when they get a delicious plate of food, something that, that maybe they have been longing for or looking for and it's laid before them, that there's a group of people, I think, that they look at what they think will be the best tasting thing on the dish and they dive into that first. Like they go, that's what I like most. I'm going after that first, and then I'll work around everything else. I also call this my children's plan of eating, all right? And so we put something on the table for them that's got three or four things. They like a couple of them. They don't prefer others. I will look over at their plate, and the stuff they enjoy will be completely gone quickly. And all the vegetables and fruit that they may not will be left there for us to fight over for the next 30 to 45 minutes, all right? I am the opposite. When I get a plate of food, I determine pretty quickly what exactly is going to be the best bite of food on that plate. If I get a a steak and baked potato, then I look at the part of the steak that I think will be the best bite of steak, and I eat around that until I get to the end of it, and then I take that final bite for the last moment, all right? If a little something less decadent, I get a cupcake. I'm not talking about fancy, like, cupcakes with all kinds of swirly stuff and cute stuff. I'm talking about the old-fashioned buy-at-the-store cupcakes with the white swirls on top. You know what I'm talking about? Are you here? Or do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I will eat all the way around that cupcake to make that last bite, the bite with the cream, the most cream right in the middle. I got anybody else here that does that. I see those hands, all right, all right? I want the last thing I remember to be the best bite I had because I want to remember how that meal ends. You've heard it said before, right? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. And the idea is that we remember the ending of something a lot more than the beginning. We remember the final lines of movies sometimes even better than the beginnings, unless the movie's bad. Now here's the truth. A movie can be good for an hour and 45 minutes, and the last 15 minutes of it disappoints you. You won't think of it as a good movie. But if the last 15 minutes are awesome, you will sit through whatever to get there. Or at least fast forward to get there in these days, right? So we're looking today at the end cap, the last morsel that James wants us to eat before he ends his book. Over the next few weeks, the series we're going to start next week, we're actually going to look at the last words that Jesus spoke on his time on earth before the cross, before he was crucified and killed. We're going to talk about those words on the cross before he rose again from the grave and what he wanted us to remember. And as we think about that, I want us to think about what James has done so far. 
So if you've been with us, you know that we've walked through this book of James verse by verse from the first part of it where he talks about the trials that they'll face. And he's looking at a group of people, and it's easy to forget the people that he's writing to, but he's writing to a group of Jewish people who are Christians that are scattered among the nations. Now, the most likely explanation for their scattering is persecution. And so you're looking at people that are in danger because of their faith. And as he's writing to them, he's reminding them that things that are happening around them are things that are going to build their faith. He says to them, remember to consider trials as something to be, a, a, something to be celebrated, to be, congratulate yourself, or to think highly of the fact that you are in the midst of a trial. Now, we're not talking about small trials for these people. We're talking about their lives being in danger. And he says, congratulations, take joy in that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Tells them to avoid temptation. Tells them to be doers of the word, not just hearers also, that in the midst of this difficult circumstance, they are to do what God has called them to do. Not just to occasionally do it, but that their lives ought to be characterized by being doers of the word, people that live their lives according to the word of God. Tells them not to show favoritism to anybody around them, that to treat all of God's people the same way, and that all people are created in the image of God. And so we never look at anyone that Jesus thinks less of than he thinks of us. We never look at anyone that Jesus thinks more of than he thinks of us that we are equal in his sight and we treat other people accordingly. That faith and works must go together, that you can't have faith without works. Now, if you look at your life and you say, man, I have faith, but there is nothing to back up what you're doing, then you have a faith that is not biblical and is not what following Jesus is all about. That our faith will result in works that are being done for the glory of God, for the spread of his kingdom, to give him glory and to make him known. And that the easiest way to determine whether or not that faith is working out in your life is to check how your tongue is doing and how you're speaking and how it's controlling your life or are you controlling your tongue. You seek wisdom that doesn't come from here. It's not selfish wisdom. It's not things from on earth, but it is from above that helps you to treat others well, helps you to serve your fellow believers well, and helps you to live your life according to God's word. And you do that with humility, not pride. And he gets to the end. And he's told them all of this stuff. And I can imagine their head spinning. See, we've done it over several weeks where we've taken a little piece of this scripture at a time and we've dissected it. They didn't have to be told the situation they were in, so they didn't even have to go through that part. They already knew. They understood James perfectly clear, or at least as clear as somebody could in that day, over what he was saying. And they read it all in succession one time through. They would have been huddled together in their houses or in their little house churches or gathered probably because they're in places where persecution is happening, not out in the open open, not in a synagogue, not where people can see them, but gathered together and figuring out what is James telling us? How are we going to live through persecution? How are we going to make it through this moment? And as they're reading that, they're reading all of these chapters in a row and I can see their heads beginning to go, how in the world are we going to do that? Layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of instruction and commandment. And they're thinking, man, how do we make that happen? And in chapter 5, James begins to turn his attention to three things that he wants them to understand that makes it possible to live the way he's called us to live throughout the entire book. Starting in James chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice this as we read through this. His tone changes as he talks about them and to them. 
He moves from just kind of giving them instruction. He moves from, in fact, at the beginning of chapter 5, he has spoken specifically to rich people, and it's kind of a confrontational tone that is there. When you get to chapter 7, he is more familial. He is more family-oriented. He is talking to them as brothers and sisters, as dear friends, as people that are fellow journeyers with, her in, with him in the faith of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance. And have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. So that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being, as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again. And the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. Three instructions that James gives these people in order for them to make it through, in order for them to endure, in order for them to live the way that God has called us to live. And the first thing is this, and it's going to hurt. We are to embrace waiting. We, and I say this kind of confidently, I don't have any statistical data to really back this up, but I'm pretty confident about this. We are the worst generation in the history of the world at waiting. We don't like it. We don't like to do it. When it happens, we don't endure it well. We are consistently looking for options and life hacks and things that will get us around issues that we want to do faster. I mean, when was the last time you were driving to downtown Nashville, got stopped in some traffic and thought, praise the Lord, I get to sit here for a long time. So excited about this. I don't know if you saw the news yesterday, but apparently something happened. I don't know what happened. I didn't see that. I just saw the reports that something was going on at the airport, that the line for the security at the airport was an hour and a half to two hours yesterday. And everybody in that line was praising Jesus for the opportunity to, right? They may have been saying some words, but it wasn't those words. We're terrible at it. I mean, we're terrible at waiting on kind of anything. I mean, right now, if I wanted to, I could ask you a question, and all of you could have answers to it almost instantaneously. I mean, if you wanted to know who the shortstop was that started for the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1986 season, I mean, unless you just know the greatest baseball team in America, and that Ozzie Smith was that, that you could find it very quickly, right? Google it, and it's there. I mean, when I was growing up, this is one of those, this is one of those, Back in the good old days stories, right? When I was growing up, when I wanted to do research, I had to go to this place called the library. And I had to use this thing called a card catalog. 
I had to look up numbers with Dewey Decimal Systems. And if I was able to find in an index, journal index, information about an article that I might be able to look at, I had to go look at it on something called Microfish. How many of you remember Microfish? Well, wasn't that a fun machine to operate right there? And it would take hours to collect. I remember my senior term paper was on C.S. Lewis. I know that will shock those of you in the room that are hearing me preach very often. And I did, a, I did a, a senior term paper on C.S. Lewis, Defender of the Faith, and I spent hours. I had, one of those, um, I had one of those file folders that you fold over and wrap around, and I had hundreds of pages of documents. And you used to run all of those pages off at the library, and they would car- charge you money for every copy. And you would never get the copyright on the first two or three, so that was just wasted money. And it would take forever to get the information. Now... You could research a paper in minutes. That may not be good research, but you could find information in minutes. We're terrible at waiting. We are people that want it instantaneously. And here's the truth about developing a following relationship with Jesus Christ that is productive and good and right. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes the ability to wait. And perhaps you're in one of those waiting seasons right now. Maybe you aren't understanding why you haven't moved to the next level of your faith with Christ. Or maybe you're in a very difficult situation financially. You're in a difficult situation with your ministry. Or you're in a difficult situation with your family. You're in a difficult situation with your health. You're in a difficult situation. You're saying, Lord, what are you doing? How are you doing? What is going on in my life? I'm ready to move forward. I'm ready to get going. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready. And nothing. The people to whom James is writing were people that fully expected that the Lord was coming back any moment. They were expecting that they were going to be rescued from this persecution. They were expecting that something would happen and they wouldn't have to live out their lives under the guise that they might be persecuted or killed for their faith. They were expecting deliverance any moment. They were like the children of Israel crying out for deliverance from in the country of Egypt while they were awaiting the exodus. And they cry out and they cry out and they cry out. And James says to him in the midst of your waiting hope embrace it he gives them a couple of reasons for that first of all he tells them that it's okay to embrace waiting because the lord is coming he tells them that right at the beginning be patient until the lord's coming the idea is that he is coming he is returning we are on a linear progression of history we are moving away from something toward something we are in the in-between time the time when we are awaiting the lord to return but the moment will come the time will come when we will look to the eastern sky and it will split open and our king our king of kings and lord of lords jesus christ is going to return and he's going to bring with him those that have gone on to be with him that have fallen asleep we are going to join them and it says that we are going to have a great big family reunion in the sky and it will be the family reunion to end all family reunions because it will be from all of god's people in all times from all places all over the world every nation tribe tongue will be there together and we will celebrate the one who gave his life for us and it will be the most glorious celebration in history it is coming And he says when you're in the midst of a difficult time, you wait because you know it's coming and it's going to be better. Revelation 21. He says, then I saw, this is the end. This is the end of the book. 
A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Man, I don't know how that's going to happen, but man, that's going to be awesome, right? I mean, I, I, you know, you read Revelation, there's a lots of stuff in there. I'm like, I don't know where the line between symbolism and reality is. All I know is whatever happens when this comes is going to be more glorious than anything we can imagine, and it will blow our minds. People use that phrase all the time, it blew my mind. This will blow our minds, all right? Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. The picture it gives is literally when those doors at the back of the sanctuary fly open and the groom is standing here and in this instance has not seen the bride and he looks upon it for the first time. We are like that, prepared for him. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he, listen to this, he, God, God Almighty, will live with us. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have all passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. I don't know what you consider a good ending or good news, but that's it. We hope in the midst of waiting. We embrace waiting because we know the ending is so good. I mean, most of you know, many of you have walked through this with us, but um, two weeks ago we lost a dear member of this church, a dear friend of mine. And as we went through the funeral services a little over a week ago for Lisa, it rained. Remember that week? It rained like every day. Heavy, hard. Last week, there were people wondering if we were going to have church because flooding. I mean, it's still, you drive by Moss Wright Park right now, it's still, last night was underwater. But on Sunday, we left church here. We drove home, and it was bright and sunny and beautiful. When I got home and got my backyard, I noticed something on my Bradford pear trees in the back. On my Bradford pear trees in the back, I saw some buds starting to form. And there was this moment that I went, and I stood at the back of my driveway last Sunday afternoon just for a second. It wasn't long. It wasn't like I was there for five minutes. I was just there for a few seconds. And as I looked up through the tree and could see the buds, I was looking to see how far the buds had come along. I could see the sun behind it. And it was in that moment the Lord spoke to me. And I don't use those, for, I don't use those words lightly, but I mean this. And he said, spring is coming. New birth is coming. Hope is here. In those moments, I needed those words. And as I thought about all that had happened in the week before, as I read this passage of Scripture this week, I am reminded that spring is my favorite time because it is true that soon there will be buds. Now, we hope those buds survive the 18 degree weather this week, by the way, right? Those buds are there. They're going to bloom. They're going to be flowers everywhere. My allergies, they're going to wreak havoc on my allergies, but it's going to be beautiful. And we're going to be reminded again that even though it has been cold and dreary and dark and rainy, that spring is coming. And when spring arrives, life begins anew. God built the seasons. I'm glad to live in a place that actually has seasons. Most of the time, right? 
And I see pictures from people in Florida right now, 75. I'm not real excited, but you know what I mean. Like, I like the flow of seasons because it reminds me that even in the darkest of days, there is hope. And one day, life is going to bud eternal for all of us. Christ is going to return, and all of the old will be passed away, and there will be no more death. There will be no more sadness. We will live in the presence of our God forever and ever. Amen. And so in the midst of the waiting for that to happen, we embrace whatever God has for us in this moment. He also tells them that we embrace waiting because God is working in us right now, producing something. I think about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says that I am confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion. And what he's saying to us, what James is saying, he talks about this picture of the farmer who is watering, who is waiting, who is looking for the fruit of the earth to come forth, and he's patient with it. He, has, he can't rush it. He can't make it go faster. What he's saying is that that is our lives, that God is watering, he's nurturing, he's taking care of us, that sometimes that comes through things of blessing that he gives us, sometimes that comes through trials sometimes that comes from us going through rough patches in our lives difficult moments but in those moments we are growing into the people god has called us to be and he will continue to develop us into that and to remind us of that he tells us that we can embrace waiting not only because of the ending that is coming not only because god is working in the midst of the waiting in our lives but also because god keeps his promises just like he kept his promises to the prophets just like he kept his promises to Job. The prophets who I think about Hebrews chapter 11, that it's all those names of people that believed in God, believed in God. They didn't necessarily see what God had for them in their lifetime, it says, but they believed and they trusted in the Lord. That they have lifted up in Scripture because of people who trusted in the Lord in the waiting, in the meantime, before Jesus even came to die for our sins. They trusted in the Lord in that moment. They waited on the Lord. And then they give the story of Job, one of the hardest stories in all of Scripture to read. Man, that is not a fun read for the first many chapters of that book. They have a conversation between God and Satan. says, let me have a run at Job. God says, you don't touch him, but you can have a run at all of his stuff. They take all of his stuff. You can have a run at his family. They take all of his family. They have a run at Job. Job ends up with boils, ends up terribly sick, family all gone, wiped out. And he just cries out to the Lord again and again and again and again. And while it is a depressing story for much of the chapters of that book, we know, the people that read this would have known, the Jewish people, the Israelites would have known that Job in the end is restored and God's promises are fulfilled in his life. And Job doesn't turn away from God. In the midst of our lives, we must embrace the waiting. Secondly, while we're doing that, he tells us, treat each other well. He tells us two ways to do that. First of all, he tells us in verse 9, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. And then in verse 12, he tells us that all of my brothers and sisters should not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. What he's saying in both of those places are, basically he's talking to a group of people that are persecuted, that are having a difficult time, that are working through what it means to follow Christ. And he says to them, above all else, make sure you treat each other well. It is hard enough in this world where we are living counterculturally against what the culture at large wants to do for followers of Jesus Christ to make it through this world. Don't make it harder by turning on each other. 
Trust in the Lord and treat each other well. Don't complain. Don't talk about things. Don't always look for the bad. Look for the best in people. Look for the the things that you, you can trust about them. Believe them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And followers of Jesus Christ in churches, don't take advantage of other people who trust in you and follow you and give people benefit of the doubt. Treat each other well. It's a call to those that are followers of Jesus Christ within the local church particularly to treat each other well. You should never complain about another church member to somebody outside this church. Never. Notice, this isn't a suggestion. Brothers and sisters, you might take it under consideration to not talk about each other that way. Verse 9, it is a commandment of God given through James, the brother of Jesus, to us as believers in Jesus Christ that we are not to complain about one another. We are, not to, 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 we are to consider each other more highly than our own selves and to treat other people as Christ would want us to do. I was looking through Twitter this week, and I saw a uh, retweet. I just thought it was um, insightful by Jen Wilkin. Our ladies are, have been walking through Jen Wilkin stuff in Genesis for the last um, several months. And so Kyle Worley, I don't know Kyle Worley. I don't know anything about him. Don't, so if he's a terrible person, don't at me this afternoon mad about me using Kyle Worley. I don't know him at all. But he says, brothers and sisters in Christ, comma, assume the best from each other, which is kind of what James says here. And I love what Jen Wilkins, she said, praying and believing for the day, this statement doesn't need a comma. That it's just a fact that brothers and sisters in Christ assume the best from each other. We just do. Treat each other well. And there's the last thing that he tells them. As you're living out this life, as you're trying to pursue Christ, you need to embrace waiting, you need to treat each other well. And the third thing is, You need to wrap your life in prayer and praise. He says, are you sick? Pray. Good things happen? Give praise to the Lord. You in need? Pray. I mean, he gives this effective prayer thing, and he talks about the fact that the prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. He tells them that, and then he gives the example of Elijah. And for the people reading this, Jewish people reading this, the biggest prophet, the best prophet in the Old Testament, there would have been a competition from some people. It would have been a little bit like the the MJ-LeBron debate, maybe, between Moses and Elijah. But Moses was considered somebody on a different level, a different kind of prophet. He was also the leader. Elijah was the true prophet. And so they looked at Elijah as like the epitome of what a prophet ought to be. And he says to the people that he's writing, you in a corner, in a room, somewhere in the Roman Empire, who cannot believe that you are being persecuted for your faith from Jesus Christ, that are running for your life. You have the same power in prayer that the prophet Elijah had. That's what he says, right? Prophet Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed, and God took care of it. He encourages them to live a life of prayer. D.A. Carson has some practical tips for those of us as we think about our prayer life, about how to make sure that we accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish. And the first thing that we need to do, that he says we need to do, is we need to plan our prayer. Schedule prayer. Now listen, I am a spontaneous liking person. Like I don't like to have lots of 
plans and schedules and all that. Like if you just let me live my life day by day, let it come to me, I would probably be good with that. But here's what I've realized in my life. And this isn't like wisdom that I practice all the time, but it's something I know. If I don't plan something to happen in my life, more often than not, it does not happen in my life. If I don't plan times with my kids, if I don't plan times with Susan, if I don't plan times in the Word, if I don't plan times for recreation or exercise, if I don't plan those times in my life, they do not happen. And somehow, sometimes in my life, I've just assumed that prayer would be one of those things that would spontaneously happen in my life. But I've discovered if I don't plan my prayer time, schedule my prayer time, it often doesn't happen. Now, I'm not talking about writing in your car and just having a conversation with the Lord. I'm talking about intense times of prayer, which I think the Bible calls us to. Schedule it. Write it down. Make a point of it. Also, be practical. Be, make sure you are trying to avoid mental drift. Be intentional about stopping it. I've also discovered, and this is, wouldn't come as a surprise to any of you, that if I try to pray with my cell phone sitting in front of me and my computer screen on and all the notifications that come with that, it is not going to happen. I'm going to get an important text message I need to take care of right away. I'm going to see a notification from one of the games that I mindlessly play at times that tells me that my jewels are ready or something's going on there, right? The chest is ready to open to get all of the loot I need to be able to build. I'm just hypothetically speaking. Angry birds are madder than usual, and they need me to come back and help them out. Some of you don't worry about that. You just play your games in here. You got your phone. I see you. I think you got your phone turned sideways like I'm really studying the Scripture. I see you flicking, all right? In our world, distractions come at us more quickly and more volume than ever before. You need to find a place and an area and a time to disconnect, to connect with the Lord. We also need to seek out prayer partners, people that we can pray with and around. Spend time with people who pray, praying with them, listening to them pray, talking with them about their prayer life. That's how we do other things. We find people that are good at that and we spend time around them. We talk to them. We investigate. We need to cover all aspects of prayer. We need to cover the variety of prayer that goes in there. That God tells us to pray on a consistent basis, but also with a variety of ways. And so when we pray, we pray with praise, we pray with confession, we pray with intercession. We pray with an ability to look at it and say, what is it in Scripture that God's calling us to? In the book of James, right here at the end, he tells them to pray for each other. He tells them to pray um, for themselves. He prays for them to confess to one another. He tells them to get in groups and kind of talk about if there's somebody that needs healing, that we pray over their healing, that if we've got trouble, we go to the Lord directly, that there needs to be a variety of prayer included in our lives. I was thinking about this last Tuesday night when I'm teaching my Old Testament class at Union, and we covered the Psalms. And one of the things that I do with them, I list the nine types of Psalms that there are. Now, some people have 11 types, some people have 8 types. The one I go with is nine types of Psalms. And I listed them all on the board. Everything from Praise the Lord Psalms, to Thanksgiving Psalms, to Hymn Psalms, to... um, imprecatory psalms, confession psalms, complaint psalms, psalms of ascent. Like, we listed them all nine on the board. And then I just said to them, which of these, because the psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament people, which of these have we not sung in your local church recently? Some of them are obvious, right? We haven't done many imprecatory psalms. Do you all know what imprecatory psalms are? you all want a word you can use tomorrow uh, at the water cooler? They still have water coolers at work. 
I don't know if they do or not. Around the, around the office, you can talk about your, your pastor's imprecatory psalm discussion yesterday. Imprecatory psalms are where, like David literally prays, God, I'm tired of these enemies. Could you take these enemies and destroy them? Could you take their kids and dash them upon the rocks? Okay, we haven't done many of those songs in worship lately, all right? We haven't done that. Now, there's reasons for that, obviously. But there's some of that stuff that we don't do that would probably be good for our soul. Specifically, one of the things we talked about was confession. Corporate confession. Being able to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm, he knows it. It's not like we're surprising him. It's not like we're going to come to him and say, oh, man, I didn't even know that was going on. He knows it already. We're not hiding anything from the Lord. It is all open to his sight. But being able to come in groups even and saying, this is where I need help. And then the last one is actually a Puritan idea that we pray until you pray. It's actually pray until you're praying. That's my typo. The idea is that you pray until you're good at praying. But the only way you're going to learn to do it is by doing it. So James says, if you're going to live this life called out by the Lord, what you need to do is you need to pray. But he adds something else in there that's even more difficult for some people. You need to live a life not only of prayer, but praise. You need to sing unto the Lord. To declare the works of the Lord. To sing things that dig deep roots. Singing to the Lord digs deep roots of the glory of the doctrine of the gospel into the depths of our heart. It helps us to remember it. I guarantee for many of you in this room, this is depressing sometimes as a pastor, but the statistics tell me that you're going to walk out of this room and within two days you won't remember 95% of what I said. But there are many of you in this room, if you get in your car when you get ready to leave and a song from the 80s comes on that you haven't heard in 25 years, you will sing every word to that song. You don't have to give an amen to that, but you know it's true, all right? Maybe it's for you, it's not the 80s. Maybe it's the 50s or the 90s, whatever it is. Maybe you're a boy band guy. I know a girl, whatever. But you know what I mean. Because music goes deep into our hearts and into our minds. And that's why Christianity has always been a singing faith. We declare with voice and with song what God is doing. David wrote most or a lot of the Psalms. He was a singing, played the harp. He also chopped the head off of a giant, but he played the harp and he sang. One of my favorite stories about it is how he was undignified in his response to the Lord. His wife gets on to him for being that way. And he says, I will be even more undignified to praise my God. James says, you want to live out all that I've told you? This whole book has been filled with commands, difficult commands. You want to live that out? First thing you got to do is you got to embrace this period of time when you may not understand everything and you are waiting for the Lord to appear, but you embrace it and you live in the midst of it. Secondly, you treat your fellow believers well. You're going to need each other to walk through this life together. Treat each other well. And thirdly, spend your life wrapped up in prayer and praise. And as you do that, the Lord will work in your life. Now, the circumstances of our life are drastically different than the circumstances of the life of the readers that James wrote to. But here's what I can tell you. The commandments on how we are to live out what Christ has called us to live are exactly the same today. We embrace the waiting. Listen, they thought Jesus was coming any moment now. 
They thought Jesus was coming soon. And in the Lord's timing, he is. But in our timing, 2,000 years seems like a lot longer than soon. Here's what I know. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I hope it's tomorrow. I really do. I don't think I told this at the beginning, but I was eating, um, I was eating dinner a couple of Wednesday nights ago with um, Alex and the Castros. Alex Castro, Danny, and Amy. Alex was sitting there, and he was eating, and he started eating his dessert first. And he said, I like to eat my dessert first because if Jesus comes back, at least I've had dessert. That's, that's a good way to live, right? It's against what I said at the beginning, but it's a good way to live. Like, got my dessert out of the way, Jesus, come on, right? But I know this, we're 2,000 years closer to Jesus returning than they were. And I'm ready at any moment, and I'm waiting. But in the midst of that, I'm going to embrace what God has for me. Second thing is we treat each other well. We love one another. We protect one another. We help one another. We live with one another. We are for one another. And then I live my life in prayer and praise. Planning that time, seeking the Lord, and giving honor to His name. What about you? What does that look like in your life for the next week, two weeks, month, or years? What does it look like for you? Let's pray together.